Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> okay. Last week, <clears throat> excuse me, we got hit with a story uh, that was frankly kind of uncomfortable, um, as most stories in the Old Testament are. Uh, it was a story, if you remember, uh, where David decided to count a bunch of people, and then God killed 70,000. <laughs> uh, so it's a very uncomfortable, like it almost seemed like this over-the-top judgment um, is what we were kind of brought face-to-face with. And uh, what we need to realize and remember from last week is that the judgment wasn't necessarily having anything to do with the actions of David, but yes, yet the heart, the source of the reason like why he did the actions, right? So we always got to bring ourselves back to what's, what's the heart of the issue, right? We always have to ask ourselves those kind of questions when we're reading things like that. Um, because, so, because the heart of it was David wasn't necessarily trying to, to, he wasn't trusting God because God's usually the one who would provide an army during wartime. So David was trying to focus on this idea of how many fighting men do I have? How big is my army? How big is my kingdom? How prosperous is my people, right? And that was the source. That was the source of the problem. It ended up being this idol to David. And because of that, we had this, like I said, almost seemed like this over-the-top judgment from God. The, two, the next big thing that we really need to get from last week is repentance. Because uh, that's what David ultimately was able to do, was fall on God, his mercy, and repentance. In, in repentance. But in this particular case, it wasn't just, I'm sorry, please forgive me. No, David first had to acknowledge that there was a problem, acknowledge that he broke something. And it was only the Lord that could fix it, and it was only God's mercy that he was trusting God. God. In a lot of ways, David was seeking refuge in God. And he writes, David writes about refuge all the time in the Psalms. Well, this week we have another story of refuge. Now, seemingly it's a, it's a little different, but in essence, that's what we're, we're going to read. First Kings chapter 2, if you want to go and read, that's eventually the story we're going to wind up in. This is the story of how uh, Joab runs to the horns of the altar in order to seek refuge. But what we learn is that, one, it doesn't work, and two, it doesn't really fit his personality. <laughs> uh, so before we talk um, any more about that, what I want, first want to do is talk about his personality. Let's talk about the character of Joab a little bit this morning, because uh, he's going to be our main character and our focus. Now, if we remember, Joab is a returning character from last week. In fact, he was the character that tried to talk David out of counting all of the soldiers. If we remember, he uh, uses the phrase, why do you delight in this? Why is this something you feel like you need to do, David? Are you, are you sure about this? <laughs> right? In 2 Samuel 24, that's what he says. Like, why do you delight in this? This is crazy, man. We know that something is extremely off when Joab is the voice of reason. Because Joab is not a reasonable person, <laughs> uh, as we get from his character kind of study here. Okay, so the, the first things that we need to kind of know about Joab is that more than likely... He is the nephew of David. All evidence kind of points to that. Okay, unless there is another Joab, but most of scripture points to the fact that he's the nephew of David. Okay, uh, he's the son of his sister uh, Zariah. Um, and this you can kind of get in First Chronicles 2 when it talks about uh, um, all of David's family and everything like that. Uh, Joab is mentioned there. Um, ultimately, what you need to remember about Joab is he's a mean and ruthless dude. <laughs> 
That, that's Joab in a nutshell. And most of his actions is either to grab power or to retain it. That's his motivation most of the time. One of those two things. Um, so <clears throat> I wanted to make sure I wrote down just a few of his highlights, so to speak. Uh, so we're not going to like bring these up. We're not going to read them or everything, but if you want to write them down just so you can kind of refresh who Joab is later, if you'd like to, that's fine. Uh, but like I said, we're just going to kind of highlight some of his highlights, highlight some of his highlights. You know what I mean? Uh, okay. So first Chronicles eleven six, Joab leads the revolt against the Jebusites in Jerusalem and becomes the commander of the army. Now this is one of the reasons why he became the commander of army, but probably the other is because he was in the trenches with David whenever he was running from Saul. So not only is he David's family, but they bled together during uh, whenever David was like running from Saul and everything. But then also this, this event right here made Joab the commander of his armies. And uh, so whenever David kind of, uh, how this story goes, David kind of says, all right, who wants to go do this? If anyone would go do this, I'd make them commander of my army. And uh, Joab was like the first to raise his hand. Like, killing people? I'm good at that. I can do that. Send me. So he goes and he leads this, this attack on the Jebusites and becomes commander of the army. Okay, so uh, that's his big highlight there. Second Samuel 3 is the story where Joab kills Abner, um, who is currently the commander of the north. Okay, uh, now remember, uh, David's big thing was to bring people together. He's trying to reunite the kingdom, all that. Okay, so th- this is what he was trying to do. Now, Joab, though, kills Abner for one of two reasons, or maybe both. Um, he was uh, feeling uh, kind of uh, fearful towards Abner that like Abner was going to take his position. Okay. David and Abner were kind of becoming buddy, buddy a little bit. And Joab got a little nervous. So he kills him because Joab wants to retain his authority, retain his power as commander of the army, or it's because Abner killed his brother. One of the two. Okay. Maybe both. All right. Um, but it seemed like most of the time his actions have to do with retaining his position. So um, it's more than likely that, but that's an assumption. All right, 2 Samuel 20, Joab kills Amasa by grabbing his beard. Get this, all right? Grabbing his beard and stabbing him in the stomach. You know, there are sometimes we get details in the Bible that are unnecessary. <laughs> uh, this is an example of that. Uh, for exa- uh, it just seemed like simply... Joab slew him would have sufficed. Uh, But that's not what we get. We get the detail of him grabbing his beard and stabbing him in the stomach. That's what we get. Um, And the reason why I wanted to highlight that is um, the author put that in there for a reason. That's usually my reasoning for doing things. The author put that in there for a reason. Uh, There's there's a... (laughs) This is all about learning how ruthless Joab is. Okay? That's what we need to grab from this. So if you can... Maybe you don't want to picture this, but if you need to picture this to really grab a hold of Joab's character, please do so. Uh, because, I mean, grabbing a hold of someone's beard, that's pretty mean, right? I mean, this is, this is some mob killing. That's what's going on here, okay? Uh, <laughs> so anyway, he's, he's a very ruthless, just killer. I mean, that's what he is, okay? On top of that, though, he's also a very loyal person. Up until the very end, of course, um, which we'll get there. But he never strived to get the throne. That was, that was never his thing. David was king. I'm commander of his army. That's the status quo. I'm doing everything I can to keep that. That's Joab, okay? So he, he never sought after David's throne, but he did, he did though, encourage David in his kingly duties, actually. So for example, 
excuse me. For example, in Second uh, uh, Samuel 12, uh, whenever they uh, Joab went and he, he he won this victory for Israel and everything like that, Joab did not take the victory for himself. Instead, he invites King David to come and actually claim the victory. So we, we kind of see this as a, as, a, as a flip. Everyone remember the story of Saul, right? Whenever he did the sacrifice instead of, instead of waiting and all that, okay? Where he, he kind of stepped out of his lane a little bit there, right? Is what Saul did. Well, Joab actually is mean and ruthless as this guy is, he stays in his lane. He realizes, I'm not king. I'm not here to claim the victory. He's loyal to David, right? So we, we have that character part of Joab, which is really kind of interesting, to be honest. So um, the other one is whenever Joab's army defeated David's son Absalom and his army, uh, David was actually mourning the death of his son, uh, you know, as you do, right? And so Joab actually had to encourage David to go out and, and meet with the troops and honor them and that and that defeat of that army, because David was too caught up in his son's death. Okay, so we see Joab encouraging David in a lot of ways. Um, and then obviously the one from last week, Joab, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Joab telling David, why do you delight in this census that you're trying to do? This is ridiculous. You know, this, this is not something right. You shouldn't be doing this. So we, we see this kind of both sides of the coin of Joab. He's both this ruthless killer but someone that is extremely loyal to David up until the very end where he makes his fatal mistake of backing the wrong son. Um, so King Solomon, obviously, is the one who becomes king. We all know that. That's where, we're, that's where we're heading, right, in our readings and all that, okay? And then we have Adonijah, which is actually Solomon's older brother, and Joab backs him instead. Why? It could something be as simple as Adonijah said, if you come with me, I will keep you commander of the army. And that's something that Joab couldn't, you know, say no to. Goes, yeah, sure. Why not? Who knows, right? Who knows? That, again, that's an assumption. But it does fit Joab's character. Okay, so we have this, like I said, so we have this ruthless killer that is the center of all of these stories that's helping David become king, helping him in his reign and, you know, and all that. And I think we're kind of left with this, uh, this uncomfortableness of like, okay, so Joab is not a good person, but yet we see good come from his actions because if it wasn't for Joab, maybe David wouldn't have become king. Right? Maybe that ruthlessness actually came in handy during some of those situations. Right? We're left asking those kind of questions. So as we keep asking those kind of questions, eventually we get to, how does God use such a ruthless person? Because that's what's happened. Right? There's a bigger plan at play here. There's much bigger than this, this one solitary life of David or this one solitary life of Joab. Right? There's, there's something much bigger at play. Because eventually God is trying to fulfill his promises through King David and his reign and his line that eventually leads us to Jesus Christ, the ultimate salvation to all of his people. Like this is the ultimate plan. But he uses someone as ruthless as Joab to get there. Hear this. Guys, hear this. If God can use someone like Joab for his kingdom... There's been far even worse people probably than Joab in the Bible. What makes you think that you've done something so bad this week that God can't use you? Pausing for a reason there. Because I want you to think about that. 
Because I, I think oftentimes when we, we read things like this, we don't let ourselves become like entrenched in the story. We just read like, yep, Joab is a bad person. David was king. And you just kind of move on. Instead of taking that first step and actually stepping into the story, putting yourself into that. And, and just, I mean, not that actions are everything, but what, what this ends up happening is through our guilt and our shame that sometimes we put on ourselves, we put, our, put ourselves in this make-believe penalty box, right? It's like, I did this thing, you know, I lied this week or whatever like that. So now there's no way I can serve coffee on, sat- on Sunday, right? And we just put ourselves, like I said, in this make-believe penalty box instead of realizing that there's something much larger at play here than you and your personal life throughout the week, We have to remember what John the Baptist taught us, where we have to become less and he has to become greater. Things that we do don't matter as much. Now, I am not trying to condone sin. I'm not trying, don't hear that, okay? I'm just saying that sometimes when it comes to our sin, we do one of two things. We completely ignore it or we completely magnify it to where it's debilitating. This morning, we're focusing on this a little bit. This idea that we just focus so much about it that we don't allow ourselves to be used. And it just stops us. In fact, here, believer, if if you're truly a believer and you're truly struggling with something, seek the cross of Christ. Seek the cross of Christ. And I want to unpack this a little bit more later, but I just feel the need to just kind of shove this in here real quick. Okay, Ephesians 1. Okay, Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1 told us that before the very foundation of the world, our plan was to become holy and blameless. So that means even in our deepest struggles as believers, okay, I want to make sure we say this because we're talking about repentance. We're talking about being a true believer in Christ. In those struggles, in those everyday struggles, we were meant to be holy and blameless. That was God's plan from the very beginning. So that means even at your worst, even at your worst, God is at work in your life. Even at the worst. And when you seek the cross of Christ and the redemption that comes through his blood, how all of our sins are covered by his actions once and for all and finished, that means any past, present, or future sin is covered by that blood. It is covered entirely to be made right in front of our heavenly father That means it doesn't matter how you came in here. It matters what you are seeking in your life. That's what matters. We'll get more into seeking the Lord later. I just, I I wanted to make sure that we get that in there. Okay. Now I've got myself lost. (laughs) Okay. But as we see the story of Joab, let's get back to Joab. All right. We see someone taking refuge in the mechanics of religion and I, I realize this is kind of contradictory when I say, go to the cross of Christ, but yet what Joab did doesn't work, okay? And we're, like I said, again, we're going to unpack this a little bit, guys. The action in themselves doesn't necessarily matter. David's actions last week when we were talking about him counting, that doesn't necessarily matter. That's not what we're talking about, Okay? So just get that out of your heads. (laughs) All right, so we see Joab being someone who tries to seek refuge in the mechanics of religion. In 1 Kings chapter 2, like I said, eventually where we're going to be, we see him run to the altar of of God and grab a hold of the horns of the altar. Okay? 
And there's probably a couple different reasons he did that. None of them are really great, okay? And we're going to talk about that here in a little bit, all right? So seeking refuge at the altar of God is actually something that we see originally in Exodus 21. So it's not like this is something that they just made up. In, in 1 Kings, we actually have two different people do it, right? We have Adonijah do it, and we have Joab do it, okay? And it's really the only time it's mentioned, doing something like that, except for Exodus 21. <laughs> Exodus 21 is kind of the basis of it, okay? So I do want to read that, Exodus 21, verses 12 through 13 first, okay? And again, this just kind of gives us the basis of the actions that we see these two guys do later on. So as, as we're unpacking this, though, make sure we rem- remember Joab, the guy that grabbed the guy's beard and stabbed him in the stomach. Okay, let's keep that in mind. All right. We get that. All right. Exodus 21, 12 through 13. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Pretty point blank. All right. But there's always a but. If he did not lie in wait for him. But God let him fall into his hand. Then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. Okay, so when we talk about this place to flee, flee, we're talking about the altar. That's what we're talking about here. Okay? But you notice that there's a rule and then kind of an exception to the rule. Okay? Now in verse 14, this is where we get, this is how we know it's the altar. Okay, verse 14. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, again, we're kind of reiterating the first rule, okay? You shall take him from my altar, meaning that's where he would attempt to flee to, okay? It's where we kind of get that, right? It's where we gather that. Take him from my altar that he may die. An exception to the rule, which is an exception to the rule, (laughs) okay? But this is kind of, in essence, this is what's getting ready to happen. Right? This is what is getting ready to happen in 1 Kings 2. So they didn't just make this up. Okay? This is, this is something that we see happening. All right? Um, so as we're continuing to kind of break this down, so we understand that whenever you run to the altar, right, that's something basis in Scripture. Okay? So now let's talk a little bit more about, okay, so why the horns? That's the next big question here. I was like, I understand here in Exodus 21, okay, I understand why they ran to the altar to try to seek refuge. Okay, I get it. What do the horns have to do with it? Why, why couldn't we just run and have a seat? Like, what's, what's the big deal here, right? Well, okay, so the horns have a bunch of symbolism, okay? Uh, but we're going to focus on just a few. Okay, deal? All right. So the main thing that we need to think about when we think about the horns, not just of the altar, but in general, is power. Power, authority, okay? And then you can kind of shift that to power, authority of God, salvation, atonement, like all of that's kind of in there, okay? But it's mostly just power and authority in general, okay? We're just kind of talking in general here. Um, For example, because in Daniel 7, whenever we're um, talking about the prophecy that's in that particular chapter and thing, that talks about the 10 horns, which represents the 10 kings, okay, which is more of like a man authority kind of idea, okay? So Psalm 75, though, again, I'm trying to shotgun this just so we kind of get an idea of horns and the symbolism behind it, okay? So Psalm 75, 10 says, I will cut off the horns of all the wicked, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. Okay, what we're trying to, what he's trying to say here is by horns means the power, right? The power of the wicked will be cut off, but the power of the righteous will be raised up. Okay, it's all power, it's all power, authority, things like that. Okay, in other words, God will remove their power. 
Okay, that's what's trying to be said. Psalm 18, which is a little bit more specific to what we're talking about today. Psalm 18 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold. The horn, the power of my salvation. Only God saves. Only God has the power to save. Only God has the power to grant salvation. Only God has the power to grant atonement. That power lies with him. The horn is just a representation of that. So catch that. The horn is a representation. It's a symbol. It's not the power within itself. Follow me? It's just a symbol. Okay? The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my, <clears throat> my God, my rock, which I take refuge. There's something very specific about Psalm 18 we need to understand. In order for God to be your fortress, in order for God to be your deliverer, in order for God to be your rock, for order for God to take refuge, he first has to be my God. He first has to be your Lord. There has to be a heart change first. If he's not your God, if he's not your Lord, all you're doing is running and grabbing empty horns that are powerless. It means nothing. In fact, that's what we kind of see in 1 Kings 2. We're going to read, we're going to read that now. 1 Kings 2, verses 20 through 32. And this is the story of Joab when he runs and grabs the horns of the altar. When the news came to Joab, what news? The news that Solomon's coming for him. That's the news. For Joab had supported Adonijah, although he had not supported Absalom. Joab fled to the tent of the Lord and caught hold of the horns of the altar. And when it was told King Solomon... Joab has fled to the tent of the Lord, and behold, he is beside the altar. Solomon sent Benaniah, the son of Jehoda, saying, Go, strike him down. So Benaniah came to the tent of the Lord and said to him, The king commands, Come out. But he said, No, I will die here. And Benaniah brought the king word again, saying, Thus said Joab, and thus he answered me. The king replied to him, Do as he has said, strike him down and bury him, and thus take away from me and from my father's house the guilt of the blood that Joab shed without cause. The Lord will bring back his bloody deeds on his own head, because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked and killed with the sword two men more righteous and better than himself. So you know what? The first time I read this, the first thing that came to my mind was actually when you play a game of tag with a kid. Have you, you ever done that? Everyone's played tag with kids. Come on, right? But when you go and play tag with kids, and you're like, all right, I'm going to get you, and you run after them, and they start running, and the first convenient object they find is base, right? 
Like it doesn't matter what it is. It could be a tree, a random rock, a turtle they found in the yard, um, whatever, you know, their mom's legs, whatever it is, it's whatever the next convenient object is, that's base. That's safety, right? That's refuge. But it's whatever they make it. It's whatever they make it. It could be anything. The problem is that whenever we try to seek refuge in things that have no power, usually our motivation is fear. Fear. And that's what we see here. So let's, let's break this down just a little bit here. And so, so like we said, we, we know that the news that Joab got was that Solomon's coming for him. So he, he knows that Solomon is after his head. He knows that. I don't know about you, but that'd scare me, right? Knowing that a king wants to be dead. So already we know that fear has to be part of the motivation of his actions, right? Like that's just human nature. It could be anybody. Like I don't care how righteous you are. If someone's coming to kill you and you know it, you're afraid. That's just how it is, okay? Um, so, So we know that. Take note that that is only part of his motivation. Here's the debate. Here's the debate. Did he go and seek the altar and the horns because he believed that God had the power to give him refuge from his enemies? Or was he simply running to the altar to grab the horns because he saw Adonijah did it? And it worked. Adonijah actually didn't die at the altar. He died later, but beside the point. So which one is it? The point is, maybe... The point is, neither worked. (laughs) It doesn't matter if his motivation was fear. Whatever his motivation was, it didn't save him. There was no salvation found at the altar for Joab because his motivation was off. Now, granted, there is a little bit of an assumption here as well that if his motivation would have been right, he would have been saved. But... I believe that the way the author constructed the story that we're meant to believe that his motivation was off. The only reason why I think that is because we got all of these different stories of the character of Joab. So we know the kind of guy he is. It does not specifically say in here, he died because he was a jerk. Like, it, you know, it doesn't say, but we, we, we read that over the last few, few books. Like, it doesn't have to specifically say that. We know his character. We know the motivations that he's had in life. We see that. So we can't say, we can say with most certainty, that he did not run to the altar seeking refuge from the Lord. He ran to the altar out of fear, hoping to be saved by religious thingies. He saw refuge being given to somebody else that did the same thing. And how easy is it for us to find refuge, comfort in religious thingies? You know, you, something as simple as, and I'm not calling people out, but, you know, you come in and you might find comfort sitting in the same seat every Sunday morning. It, it's not written down anywhere, but there's assigned seats in church, right? Like, there it is. Okay, so, but it's comforting, right? Like, this is, this is my spot. This is where I am comfortable coming every Sunday. This, you know what I mean? This is my space, okay? 
I'm not saying that because you sit in the same seat every Sunday that you're going to hell or anything like that. Don't hear that. But I'm just making like how easy it is for us to slip into something that we do all the time, a ritual that we have every single week, and it brings us comfort, so therefore we keep doing it. Something as mindless, like I said, is sitting in the same seat or serving. Right? Well, you know, hey, I do, I do Wednesday night things. I do team meetings. I do uh, whatever, right? Name, name your church juice, whatever you would like to drink, right? And speaking of juice, even the rituals of like Lord's Supper and baptism in of themselves don't save you. They're re- ritual religious thingies, you know? We don't want to underpower them, but we definitely don't want to overpower them in Sunday morning service. Everything is meant to point us back to the person of Christ, not the ritual within itself. I don't know if you guys realize this, but when we serve those in Sunday, it's just juice and crackers. That's all it is. It's nothing special. There's no power in it. In fact, the only power it has is maybe an upset stomach because they don't taste good, right? But they point us back. They make us, they help us to seek the Lord. Same with baptism. You know, uh, uh, <laughs> David makes the joke almost every single baptism. Like, there's no sin-soaping, or sin-soaking, whatever he says. You get what I'm saying, right? But he says it, like, almost every time. But it, it's a good point. There's nothing special about the water. It's just a bathtub. That's all it is. It's an outward expression of an inward decision. That's it. Okay? All of these things have a purpose to help us seek the Lord, not idols. Not empty horns. I think it's worth unpacking this idea of seeking the Lord a little bit. Um, Because I think, especially if you go to church, uh, you went to church your whole life, or even if you're brand new, and be like, I don't know what that means. But what do you mean seek the Lord? You know, I I think sometimes it's good to be practical with things like this. So... So that's what I want to kind of do for a second. So when we say seek the Lord, it in of itself can sometimes be kind of a confusing uh, phrase, right? Because it says right there on our banner that he is with us always. So if he is with us always, why do we need to seek after him, right? So this is immediate like, okay, this doesn't make sense. I'm, I'm already confused. And when we tell people, you know, we, we, maybe we mean good for them and say, oh, have you tried seeking the Lord in that? Like, I don't know what that means. I thought, I thought I, you know, I, I believe, you know, it says that his spirit dwells within me. So what's the big deal? Like, why do I have to seek after him? If we all have to be honest, there are times that he still feels distant. The Lord feels distant. Like, let's be honest, right? That's true. So if he feels distant, then there has to be some, something off, right? And most of the time that is sin. Our own sin separates us. He is with us. We're the ones that take the step back, not him. And I would venture to guess 98% of the time, it's some form of idolatry is what causes it. For example, like me, I often, um, I'm really good at like isolating myself, especially when I get very stressed and anxious. I just get like, I can do it. I don't need anybody else go away. You know what I mean? I I just, I isolate myself. So what I do is I end up idolizing my own strength. I don't need anybody else. That's very easy for me to go there because I have trouble trusting people. So that becomes an idol for me. 
But it's something we always want to go after, is the idea of seeking the Lord, seeking refuge in Him. And what that just simply means is simply looking for His presence and His authority in your life. It's kind of a simple definition. Seeking the Lord simply means looking for His presence and authority in your life. Psalm 105.4 says, Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. See, this isn't something we just make up. We're told specifically to seek Him. Even though He's with us always, we're still told to seek Him. Simply means to set your heart and your mind on Him or to consciously focus your thoughts on the affections of Christ. How he views you, for example. First Chronicles 22.9, Now set your mind and heart to seek the Lord your God. This is something very specific I want to make sure we point out. Don't hear, I need to do more or I need to do less. That's like saying, I need to do more baptism-y things. I need to do more. I need to take the Lord's Supper more often, right? Again, you're you're leaning back on the ritual. You're leaning back on this empty altar, these empty horns, instead of seeking the source of that power by focusing on the affections of Christ for you. Last night at our marriage conference, Paul Tripp, that's the video that we were watching, he gave one of the simplest definitions of idolatry I think I've ever heard, and I really liked it. I wrote it down because I wanted to make sure I said it this morning. An idol is a good thing that becomes a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. I really enjoyed that. If you write anything down this morning, that's what I want you to write down. Okay, an idol is a good thing that becomes a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. The altar in of itself is not a bad thing. But when you believe the altar within itself saves you, now you're giving it power that does not belong to it. That's what Joab has done. Okay, when you take all of your time and focus it on things that do not pertain to uh, seeking the affections of Christ, now all of a sudden your time is an idol. Scott had a good story. I'm not going to call you out completely, but Scott had a good story about how he was idolizing time. And he was able to recognize that. And it was great that he was able to recognize that. There are things that probably we all do where it's like, oh man, I never even realized that that's what I was doing. Because it's so easy to make idols in life, to make even it be rituals or our things, whatever it is, instead of seeking the Lord and his affections for us. When you, when you continually do that, now things have their proper position in your life. Baptism doesn't have power, but you are super excited when you see someone get baptized because you understand what that symbolizes. You following me? Okay, the second big thing that I want us to get from this story 
excuse me, is in verses 31 and 32, when Joab actually gets killed, okay? I want to read those again real quick. Do as he has said. In other words, Job is like, I ain't leaving. You're going to have to kill me where I sit. And Solomon's like, got no problem with that. (laughs) So do as he has said, strike him down and bury him. And thus, I love this, take away from me and from my father's house, the guilt of the blood that Joab shed without cause. The Lord will bring back his bloody deeds on his own head. The altar, the thing that represents our atonement. All of these blood sacrifices that happen that are, you know, uh, you, you kill all these things, you have these sacrifices, and you put them on the, the horns of this altar in order to make atonement for sin. And here again, we see blood being spilled by the altar but it's a meaningless blood. It doesn't do anything, right? Because it comes back onto himself. But what we get, what we get is a blood on an altar of a cross that means so much. Joab, in his lack of faith, in his lack of trusting God and actually seeking refuge in God and not just the rituals and the idols of, a, of an empty, hornless altar, His punishment is his own, where our punishment is on Christ. He bore all of our punishment, all of the wrath of God, so that we we wouldn't have to. And his free gift of salvation is just given to us. We don't have to be killed for our own sin, because Christ was killed for us and took our place for that. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I'm going to ask the band to come up as we kind of just make this final note. When Christ's blood was spilled, all power and authority have been given to him. Hear that? All the power He became the horn of salvation. It's not an empty horn. But it has all of the power. Luke 1, 68-69, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Christ is the only way to be saved and he's where the power is he is the power of salvation and he asks you this morning to come and trust in that not your assigned seat at church (laughs) not in baptisms not in the ritual churchy thingies but seek him and his power because he has become that horn of salvation that is forever lifted up at the right hand of God So this morning, I want you to think about what horns are you grasping onto this morning that are powerless? And what ways can you focus your hearts and minds on the affections of Christ? Because that's what it means to seek after him. Maybe there's a few uh, verses that you can always go to. You read those things and it helps you remember how Christ views you. Ultimately, we grab hold of this horn and not the empty horns and the idols of our lives.